Recently, some things have come to light, just in the last week or so, about a certain celebrity who allegedly wanted a knighthood, pretty desperately, and he was upset about not getting one. Now, obviously, I'm not going to mention that celebrity's name, but it rhymes with uh, David Deckham. <laughs> hope that's not given too much away. Now, whatever the exact details about that, it's not really very interesting. But as I listened to that story being reported last week, I learned a lot about the whole process of how people get knighthoods. Apparently, it usually involves campaigning, persuading friends and acquaintances to write letters to the palace, giving reasons why you should be honored with a knighthood. And on the radio, they interviewed someone whose company specializes in helping people get knighthoods. The reporter asked this man, have you ever had any strange requests to your company? The man said, well, just a few weeks ago, I was contacted by someone who said, I recently earned a first-class degree from Oxford. As yet, I haven't received any job offers, but what are my chances of getting a knighthood? on the basis of my first-class degree. The company replied, Congratulations on your degree, but we encourage you to wait a while before applying for a knighthood. In other words, you haven't arrived, mate. You don't get a knighthood just for making a start, even if it's a good start. Now that story is not too far away from the situation being addressed by the book of Hebrews. We've seen in previous weeks, this letter is written to Christians who are discouraged. And part of their discouragement comes from wrong expectations. They seem to think it's enough just to make a start on the Christian life. They need reminding that is not enough. Making a Christian commitment is just the beginning of a life of commitment. Making a start is wonderful, but it's just a start. So if you haven't already opened your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. In the large print uh, Bibles, that's page 1865, and in the smaller print Bibles, 1204. I'm going to read from chapter 5, verse 11 through to chapter 6, verse 12. The writer has just been speaking a lot about Jesus, and he begins in chapter 5, verse 11, our passage by saying this, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you, because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. 
Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain once falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. This is God's word. And if we are going to sum up the message of this passage, we could put it like this. Don't be a baby. Of course, that's a bit offensive. None of us like to be told that. But sometimes it is what we need to be told. And when you and I are told this sort of thing, it matters who is telling us. If it's someone who barely knows you, or who's always sniping at you, then you might be wise to ignore what they say. But if someone who knows us and cares about us says this kind of thing, maybe they're telling us what we actually need to hear. That's the situation in Hebrews. The writer refers to these people as his dear friends. Literally, beloved, he calls them. He knows these people, he cares about them, and he is concerned about their discouragement. His main way of addressing their discouragement is to point them to Jesus. We've seen that in previous weeks. The majority of this book is about the treasure we have in Jesus Christ. But in several places, our writer says, my dear brothers and sisters, wise up. Wake up. Don't miss out on all God has for you. And our passage this morning 
is one of those wise up and wake up passages. The first part of this calls for some soul searching. As we listen to it, God's word is asking us, are you growing up? Look again at chapter 5, verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. Much more to say about this means much more to say about Jesus and his work for us in the past, the present, and the future. But the difficulty is you no longer try to understand, or we might translate it, you have become lazy. That's how the same word is translated near the end of the passage. This is a particular kind of laziness. These people seem content to be spiritually immature. Apparently, they are not new Christians. Verse 12 says, judging by the amount of time they've been Christians, they ought to be able to teach others by now. But they're not. And it's not even the case that these people are stuck on their Christian ABCs. They seem to be forgetting even those basics. He says you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. These people seem to be regressing from ABCs back to grunts and hand signals. Maybe I should mention here the difference between being childish and being childlike. To be childlike is to be willing to trust, and that is a good thing. Jesus said that is how we must come to God. But childishness is different. Childishness is a refusal to grow up. And that's what our passage is talking about here. Someone has said to stand still in God's way is to go back. Apparently that is what's happening or in danger of happening to these Christians. At some point, they decided they were content to be spiritual children. But they're sliding back to become spiritual babies. To stand still in God's way is to go back. If we don't actively seek to grow up as Christians, we will not stay where we are. We'll go backwards. So what's involved in growing up? Look again at verse 13 of chapter 5. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So growing up means becoming more acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. That seems to be shorthand for the whole message of the Bible, both the big picture and the small details. What is God like? What has God told us? And equally importantly, what has he not told us? What has God promised? What has he not promised? How does God deal with people? What does God want? 
How do we know him and follow him and please him? How should we think? How should we live? How should we pray? Do you and I want to know more about all that? Or can we really not be bothered? Do you still act and react the same way you did 10 years ago? Assuming you've been a Christian that long. William Barclay says, There are Christians in whose faith there has been no development for 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years. They are grown men and women and yet insist on remaining content with the religious development of a child. One of the glorious things about God is that there's always more of him to be known and experienced. One of the wonderful things about the Christian life is there's always more to be discovered. New ways to love, honor, and enjoy God. And so it is tragic when we become spiritual Peter Pans. Peter Pan was the boy who never grew up. It's a great story to read. It's fun to watch it on the stage but it is sad to meet real-life Peter Pans, especially those who claim to be Christians. Verse 14 says, Solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Constant use means constant practice. So growing up is not just about reading more, or listening more carefully to sermons, although that is part of it. Growing up is about using what we read and hear, putting the truth to work in different situations, in everyday situations. My grandmother had a doctor who was well known for two things. For claiming to be a Christian and for being one of the most obnoxious people you could ever meet. I used to work in a Christian bookshop in the town and that man came in every couple of months to buy his Bible reading notes. He wasn't going to miss those. But apparently he was not using what he read. He was not practicing that truth in his work as a doctor especially in the way he related to people. We grow up as Christians by constantly trying to use what we read and hear from God's word. Going into chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. In this list, cleansing rites is probably a reference to baptism. 
and laying on of hands could indicate being publicly welcomed into the church fellowship. Along with repentance, resurrection, and judgment, these are the basics of the Christian faith. Notice how they are called the foundation. So when we're told to move beyond these things, the point is not that we move away from them. These are the foundational things. What we're being called to do is build on this foundation to understand these things more fully and more deeply and to live them out more authentically. In fact, look how it's worded in verse 1. We are to be taken forward to maturity. That's what theologians call a divine passive. It's referring to what God does. And so this is not about you and me pulling ourselves forward by our bootstraps. This is about being receptive and responsive to God. Growth happens in our lives as we open ourselves up to learn and to apply ourselves to learn and then commit to practicing what we learn. As we do that, God takes us forward. Then after being challenged about growing up, in verses 4 to 8, we are asked to consider the well-watered wasteland. These verses are grim. But the first thing to notice is how the writer switches here from talking about you and us to talking about those and they. In other words, the previous verses were personal. This is what you're like. This is what you need to do. And by the way, I'm in this with you. He says, let us move forward. But these verses are about other people. They describe a situation these Christians are to think about carefully. Chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Who are these people? Well, they're people who have had some kind of spiritual experience. That's pretty clear. And initially, it looked like the real thing. Earlier, this book reminded us of how things were in the early church. It told us the message about Jesus Jesus didn't come just by itself. Chapter 2 says, God testified to the gospel by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it's not hard to see how people could come into that kind of environment and respond to it. In verse 4, enlightened is literally shined upon. God was doing things 
And these people sensed it. They saw there was light and life in the church. They tasted the heavenly gift. They sampled the signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Spirit that were going on. They had up-close experience of what the Holy Spirit was doing. They tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They were like the people in Jesus' parable earlier, the parable of the soils. When they heard the Word, they received it with joy. Yes, that's what I need. They tasted the powers of the coming age. Maybe they gave up old habits in their life. They began to love God and seek his kingdom. But they fell away. They didn't keep going. And so, according to the New Testament, their spiritual experience, whatever it was, was not genuine Christianity. Why? Because genuine Christianity perseveres to the end. That is a mark of true saving faith in Jesus. Hebrews has told us that twice already, back in chapter 3. Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. And again, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. And think again about Jesus' parable of the soils. The good soil in that parable is not the soil that initially receives the word with joy and then falls away. The only soil Jesus calls good is the soil that produces a lasting crop. In that parable, the rocky soil had all the signs of life for a short time, Jesus said. But what initially looked like new life quickly fell away. Jesus agrees with the writer to the Hebrews. Perseverance is a mark of genuine Christianity. These people in verses 4 to 6 did not persevere. They fell away. Now as we hear those words, fall away, we need to be very clear what this means. It does not mean they missed a few weeks of church. It does not mean they gave in to some temptation and got themselves tangled up in sin. It means they deliberately turned their back on Christianity. They renounced it. Please, please hear that. If you messed up last week, that does not mean you have fallen away. If your life feels like a dark tunnel at the moment, that does not mean you've fallen away. If you don't feel like dancing all the time, if you don't seem to have faith that can move mountains, 
That does not mean you have fallen away. This is talking about the kind of person who begins to attend church. They start listening. They start spending time with Christians. They begin to say things like, there's something different here. There seems to be spiritual life. Maybe you've heard people say those kind of things. They're beginning to sense something of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Maybe they even make some kind of public profession of faith. But it never goes anywhere. They drift away over time, and in the end, they take their stand with those who have contempt for the gospel. They sneer at it, and they sneer at those who believe it. That is what it means to fall away. It's not about weakness or failure or doubt. It's about tasting the reality of God, but then deliberately and decisively choosing to reject that reality. And verse 6 says, by doing that, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. They are aligning themselves with those who crucified Jesus. And they're sending the message publicly, I tried Jesus and I find him worthless. That is subjecting him to public disgrace. It is that kind of person, verse 6 says, cannot be brought back to repentance. Why? Because God allows that person's firm decision to stand. He gives them what they want. Maybe you're wondering, are these verses talking about you? Well, here's how you know. If these verses unsettle you, They are not talking about you. If the people described in these verses were here, if for some reason they were dragged in here, these words would not cause them a ripple. They'd be water off a duck's back. Just one more reason to sneer at stupid Christians and their stupid saviour. So then, why are these verses here? If they're not about the people Hebrews has written to, why include them? They're here not so you and I can worry that we are these people. These verses are here to spur us on, to make us eager to be taken forward to maturity. We've all had a spiritual experience of one kind or another. Otherwise, why would we be here? To one degree or another, we have all tasted spiritual reality. But so had these people. So let's be serious about growing up. Let's not think it's okay to remain a spiritual baby.
Verse 7. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. These verses are here to illustrate the point made in verses 4 to 6. We can think of those people as being like a well-watered wasteland. And the point is made by way of a contrast. There are two kinds of land in verses 7 and 8. Both kinds of land receive rain. So how do you tell which kind of land will receive God's blessing and which kind will be burned? The difference is in what each of them produce. A good crop or thorns and thistles. And likewise, we're being told, everyone who dips their toe in Christianity is exposed to God's word, like land that receives rain. So how do you tell a true Christian experience from a superficial Christian experience? Does that person grow to maturity or do they fall away? Over time, do they produce God-glorifying fruit or God-rejecting rebellion? A good crop or thorns and thistles? In general, you and I ought to be focusing and feeding ourselves on God's promises on his grace and his goodness. That is what the majority of this letter focuses on. It's miserable to be always freaking ourselves out with scare stories. But, every so often, there is value in stopping to consider the well-watered wasteland. And I would guess we all know the kind of person described in these verses. Someone who tasted the goodness of the word of God. Who initially gave every sign of spiritual life. But they didn't persevere. And today, their life is a spiritual wasteland. Hebrews calls you and me to think about that tragedy and then recommit ourselves to carry on into maturity. The writer of Hebrews knows very well he has just said some heavy things. And he wants his readers to know he does not believe he's writing to people like that. Look what he says in verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. The writer started this passage talking about you. Then in the middle he talked about they. Now he's back to you again. 
All the things he's just said about falling away and producing thorns and thistles. That was not a description of the people he's writing to. It was a warning to them to press on and carry on. He calls them his dear friends. And he's convinced of literally the better things in their case. In other words, the better things mentioned in verse 7. He's convinced these people will produce not thorns and thistles, as in verse 8, not the product of short-lived spiritual experience. No, in their case, he's confident they'll produce a useful crop, a crop that will receive the blessing of God. He's confident their lives will display the fruit that comes from genuine salvation. And this is not just wishful or positive thinking on his part. He has good reason to think this way about these people because he's already seen evidence of good fruit. Verse 10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. These are men and women who have a track record of love and service. In the past, that was true, and even though some of them are wavering, they are still serving in the present. God is not going to ignore that good fruit. After all, God is the one producing it in their lives. So our writer has challenged these Christians and us. Are you growing up? He's giving us a shocking situation to think about. Consider the well-watered wasteland. And now he reassures us. He reassures these Christians. He can see evidence of genuine spiritual life. And I can give that same reassurance to many of you. And so with confidence that God has begun a good work in us, let's commit ourselves to carry on into maturity. Verse 11, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. The Christian life requires diligence, faith, and patience to the very end. And at the very end comes a glorious inheritance. We started with a man who graduated from university and thought he'd arrived. Where's my knighthood? But how much more tragic to respond to the good news about Jesus and think we've arrived. To think all God has promised is just going to fall into our laps. Let's resolve that we will continue seeking God. Let's commit to trying to put into practice what we learn. 
And as we do that, he will take us forward into maturity. He will lead us into greater obedience, greater love, greater rest in him, and finally, into eternal rest with him. Let's ask for his help as we sing our final two songs, O great God of highest heaven, and then Jesus, I my cross have taken.